full disclosure, one year for my birthday in high school, I went into Philadelphia with my parents to go to the like sing-along version of 1776. And um, <laughs> I didn't know that existed. We were like some of the only people there. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today has written for American Theatre, Forbes.com, and Paste Magazine. It's Teresa J. Beckhusen, everybody. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Oh, thank you for being had. It's lovely to speak to you. We have uh, a couple of mutual friends in common, I think. Notice, yes, notably, Danielle Momin, who would very notably get mad at me if I didn't mention that. So I'm going to go ahead and mention <laughs> I would that. be mad too. Yeah, well, she's one of my favorite people, so I kind of owe her a lot. But uh, so she's been asking me to have you on, and I'm excited to have you on since oh, you are you, the lover of musicals to talk about 1776. Sit down, Seventeen seventy six. This has never come up. <laughs> oh, I'm stunned. You mean a musical about the founders? People well, like, were champing at the bit. What's so funny about it is, it, it. I mean, aside from the fact that it was it was a huge hit when it mm-hmm. when it came out, it's a seminal show in that sense. It's a show that like my the movie was on constantly when I was a kid, um, and but like. It just, there's a certain point, I feel like, in the world where people don't deal with it anymore. It did get revived when I was in high school, which I, even at the time I thought was weird. Um, but, you know, did it did okay, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so it's funny. It, it's a big hit show. It never came up and we're here to talk about it tonight. So how did 1776 come into your life? Oh, um, well, I was thinking about this because I know this is a question you ask everybody. Mm -hmm, And um, I realized that I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't know this show. Mm. Um, So um, it's a musical that, you know, like you said about the movie, that is what um, I grew up watching. So Mm. I've actually rarely seen this on stage. I've mostly encountered 1776 through the movie. Um initially through our VHS tape. And it was just a show that my family really liked. We would typically watch it around the, you know, Independence Day, of course, which was also around my birthday. Mm. And um, so I think in some ways, maybe those were like a little linked, but it just also became a show that like my parents would reference. They had seen a production of it, I think at Paper Mill Playhouse um, before I was born. And so that was like a show that my dad said like, oh, I... I didn't really like American history, like learning about it before I saw this musical. And then I saw this and it just was like, oh, these were, these were real people. Mm. Um, And so they really loved it. And I think another thing 
like another reason I think I developed like a weird affinity for it besides just like, oh, we watch it every year and reference it very frequently um, was just where I grew up. I grew up outside Philadelphia. Mm. And so you're just kind of in that space. There is like white colonial settler history everywhere. Um, (laughs) You can't swing a cat without like hitting a roadside plaque. You know, I could drive up the Delaware River to where Washington crossed the Delaware very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, At a town yeah. called Washington's Crossing. Exactly. Easily. <laughs> Ap- aptly named. Yeah, like, mm, wow, I can't believe they predicted it. Um, but, I mean, and and then kind of in a weird linking, um, there's a Washington Crossing Park that has this open-air theater, and my mom performed a lot of community theater there as well. So it wasn't oh, okay. just like, oh, we're not a one-musical household. Like, this sure. was just, we were listening to all kinds of musicals all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. So just just like constantly throughout throughout my life is sure 1776 is there uh it's a pretty self-explanatory plot but i feel like there's some important stuff we're probably going to get into so it's probably best if we kick off with obviously this is the story of 1776 and the writing of the declaration of independence but it chooses a lens obviously through which to tell that story so could you summarize the Lens cho- choice, I guess, for the people at home of what, how seventeen seventy six is constructed. I'm really curious though to hear like how you are defining the lens. Um, but so I will I will give that's a, a good point. Of that's a good a synopsis. Point. That's a good point. Um, so for me, I would describe it as um, it is about the eight weeks leading up to the Fourth of July. Um, which obviously we all know now is not when the Declaration was actually signed. Right. Um, but you know for dramatic mm-hmm. emphasis and stakes that's you know what we're going to do and um so john adams delegate from massachusetts is the chief proponent of independence separating from britain casting off you know being colonies um so he is just trying to push this motion through congress and he has to convince every delegation to sign on to independence um so he enlists um other people Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, most notably in, um, in achieving that goal. He convinces Jefferson to write the Declaration of Independence. And then he meets roadblocks, mainly in this musical, through the figures of John Dickinson of Pennsylvania and Edward Rutledge of South Carolina. I still Very have to good. think about that Very one. Very good. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, it's John Adams' story. You know, it, it's his yeah. story of what happened, a, a fictionalized account of- Very sort of, fictionalized. As a sort of like half-heard history lesson recount of- and then dramatized on top of that, um, yes. and then musicalized on top of that. So there's a lot of, a lot of layers, a lot of layers to this this one. Yeah, um, and it is something that if you are, it's funny to know this musical and then watch the HBO miniseries John Adams, mm-hmm. which takes the much more obviously literal approach to what scholarly approach. scholarly approach to what actually right. happened, um, because they gel, but. In some key ways, they don't. <laughs> in some key yes. moments, it, it isn't gelled. Um, I hadn't listened to this in years. I mean, it had been, it had been years. Um, mostly in 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 my house, this is the my, my mother singing. She plays the violin, but just that line, he <laughs> right. plays the violin. Just yeah. singing that, just the title, over and over again. <laughs> under his chin and he bows oh he bows for he knows yes he knows that it's high 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 
I don't think she knew any of the other words. Is this song. is this a parent thing? Because that is like my dad with every song as well. It's just like I know one line. I'm just gonna like interject it here and there, and well, that's not be it. And she would also say every now and again, she'd go, "Oh, I love 1776." Sit down, John. Like that's what she'd say. And I this is before I ever heard it, and I was just like. Is so that really that just, big of a deal? But it is. Like, it's the whole opening number. Obviously. It is the whole opening number. But you must have just had, like, a really weird idea of what the like, show was based on those two isolated two lyrics. Two pieces of ideas, yes. Um, and so then I heard it in college, because you have to. And then I forgot about it, uh, frankly. But then came back to it, obviously, to listen to to talk to you about it. And I was struck by, there's been a lot of conversation. I mean, you cannot obviously talk about 1776 without talking about Hamilton. It is not possible. They played in the same theater for crying out loud. And there is some great, there are some great pictures of um, Lin-Manuel and uh, uh, William Daniels sort of squaring off as the two characters of Hamilton and John Adams, which is pretty funny, pretty, pretty cute photo. Um, moments and obviously hamilton references the show with the adams administration sit down john you fat mother it is interesting to with all the discussions that have been going on about hamilton lately about what is its place in theater with it being on disney plus and and mm-hmm. how it addresses or doesn't address pertinent social issues of the time um i was listening to it this time with that ear mm-hmm. And the understanding that it was written in 1969. And I have to say, it came out way better than I thought it was going to. I was really ready to cringe the whole way. And I only cringed about half of the way. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, because, so, I mean, you know, we're we're talking about enslavement, obviously. Mm -hmm. And and it is, but it is addressed in this show. And addressed in a way that I find to be really intelligent. It's one of those, it's one of those weird things that happens in musicals from this time period where they, like when they get things right, they get them really right. Like they don't get everything right, but like there's two songs in this show specifically that knock me down that I think are, mm-hmm. are really, really great songs. Um, and one of them is Molasses to Rum. Molasses to Rum to Slaves isn't morals, tis money that saves. Shall we dance to the sound of a profitable pound in molasses and rum and slaves? Who sailed the ships out of Guinea laden with Bibles and slaves? Tis Boston can boast to the West Indies coast Jamaica, we brung what he craves Antigua, Barbados We brung Bibles and slaves Yeah, it comes at a point in the show too where you do feel like I am, like the tension is ratcheting up and so the moment um, so just as context for people who aren't as familiar with the show um what Peter Stone, the book writer, and Sherman Edwards, who composed um, the music and, and wrote the lyrics, um, so what they did to 
ratchet up the tension was say that the South was objecting specifically to one clause in the Declaration about slavery, mm-hmm. um, which historically was like not totally true. But I right. think that for the sake of the dramatization that works um, to create those stakes and to then talk about this issue. Um, and so Adams, who, you know, comes across as, you know, very abolitionist in this in this musical mm-hmm. is rightfully really, really angry with Edward Rutledge of South Carolina for like stalling out on these two issues of independence and um, ending the mm-hmm. practice of enslaving people. <laughs> And so Rutledge is just like, okay, well, you you think that you're so high and mighty coming from the North, so self-righteous. Well, guess what? You're profiting off of this just as much as the South is. And so he sings Molasses to Rome, which is all about the triangle trade, which, you know, if you are mm-hmm. taking history in school, that's when you learn about that. Mm-hmm. And it really is, um, it's just really chilling. It is mm-hmm. just a really chilling number that, um, yeah, I mean... And I grew up listening to like John Cullum singing it in the movie, which mm-hmm. um, is different than Clifford David. And um, but I, I really think that no matter who is, I think there's just a lot of um, power in the song, just as it's written. Because even reading it, um, which I I am such a huge nerd that when I came across a script of 1776 at Salvation Army in high school, I saw it and I said, this is mine now. Look at that mass market market paperback. It's a cute little penguin (laughs) drama book. Um, Somebody in 1990 bought this at the Princeton University bookstore. Um, But even reading those lyrics on the page um, is just like, oh God, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I was, you know, talking with my parents about this musical because um, they listen to the show too. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my mom uh, was like, yeah, you know, you sit there and you just, you feel so accused. And I said, well, I, that's kind of the point. That is the point. Yeah, you are the, supposed to point. feel implicated directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think about, as you were saying, the time in which this was written, you had the civil rights era. And I have to imagine that, you know, they believed that their audience on Broadway was probably going to be predominantly white liberal people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is just, this song is also just like, Hey, don't be so complacent. You know, like you're, right. you're not maybe as great as you think you are. Um, and the show <laughs> is a contemporary of hair. I mean, the show, hair is the show that it, 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 it beat hair at the Tony awards that year. Um, and so that's where we are, you know, in, in the culture we're, we're in the age of, of hair and, and, uh, and Aquarius and the age. There you go. Oh, very good. I should have said that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it's good. Um, it's, that's the kind of, that's, that's what we're working with here. So that's what, you know, that's the, the thing that's in the air. I was thinking recently about how, I think one of the things that trips up people with, with Hamilton right now is that it is such a musical of the Obama administration and that era and the audacity of hope and the everything's fine with the system like the system isn't the problem we are in the system we work within the system and we solve the problem and everything's great and now that is not where we are um at all and so everything that's in any way in that vein feels out of place it feels out of step it, and it should it you know it's from a different era the, the hilarious thing is the era was four years ago not like 50 years ago like it is with this musical um but this musical feels almost like an eisenhower administration <laughs> musical to me now maybe that's because 
timeline wise, I mean, it would have been written during the, you know, obviously the end of the Johnson administration into the Nixon administration. Mm -hmm. This is not a Nixon musical, but it also like Lyndon Johnson isn't like the Democratic president who's then replaced by a Republican. Lyndon Johnson was wildly unpopular in the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party. And, you know, the 1968 convention was its whole own thing. Um, And so it's not quite as clean as it is between Obama and Trump. It is a mm-hmm. much, much murkier system. But this show kind of comes, or maybe it's more out of the Kennedy administration. You know what I mean? It just has this sort of more, like there's things we have to fix and there's things we need to deal with. But on the whole, everybody's great. <laughs> and, uh, and in the traditional sort of founding fathers way that I grew up with, I mean, it's not, you know, um, it's not a new idea and it's not, a, you know, it's, it's, it's as old as time that these people were, were, were on the whole good people. And it sort of culminates in the finale in that way when, is it Rutledge who leaves? It's Dickinson. Yeah. It's Dickinson, Dickinson. Who's just like, I cannot in good conscience affix my name to this document. But, right. And know. then they decide that everybody who didn't sign should leave, should leave yeah. Congress sort of push forcing his hand and he decides he'll support the revolution, but he won't sign the document. Mm-hmm. And he leaves and they kind of applaud him as he leaves. Yeah. Which is super weird. <laughs> it's always such a weird moment, right? Because it's like, oh, wow. And I think this is like kind of the problem with how they like flattened the historical person that was mm-hmm. Dickinson. Mm-hmm. Because he had like way more, like his views in this boil down to like, oh, he seems like a loyalist. And like, that's kind of it. But, right. you know, he he wrote the letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania. And he mm-hmm. just like, and he was a Quaker too, which right. I feel... It's very like, important. Obviously, it's very important. Like, obviously, he's going to oppose all-out war. Mm-hmm. But then he still does go and fight. And also denies, like, people want to make him an officer. And he's like, no, no, that's fine. I'm not going to do that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think some of it, though, I think maybe that, like, the kind of, like, applauding and just, like, that recognition is supposed to be a nod to, like, the manners of that time where it's like, oh, we might disagree, but I can still like respect your views, which we are not at that point but anymore. Even, but we it's, ever even, were. it's true. It's very true. But it's the, but it's the manners of, of 1776. It's also yes. the manners though of 1969. Ni- there's this sort of general, one thing that I've always found very funny about English, but British culture is that they are, and I'm going to make a wild sweeping generalization here, gang, but, but roll with me. British people are more polite than Americans on balance in, to each other in public and all that. However, in their government, in the parliament, they are unbelievably rude to each other. I mean, unbelievably rude to each other to a level that you would find shocking here. You know, like you would find that shocking in a culture as rude as the United States of America, which is a pretty rude group. But we take we have this this cultural thing about politeness in government, about politeness in civic, you know, Robert Robert's Rules of Orders, mm-hmm. procedure, and it, it's the sort of respect the enemy, you know, you, we disagree with each other here, but that doesn't mean that we're, you're a bad person, that I disagree with you. We just that, have to be civil to each other, like that's the solution. Right, that's the solution, and that's worked great so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny that in, a, in an interesting way, as stuffy as they may be, the British system feels better to me of the sense of like, I'm polite with you when I'm seeing you. And then when we get down to the nitty gritty of what we're going to spend our money on, I'm going to yell at you until you, you tell me, you know, you do what I want you to do. And 
I don't know where that comes from, and, I'm, and we're not here to talk about it, but it, it's, it strikes me as this sort of idealized American setup, that applause at the end, that of like, well, we disagree, but, you know, he's a good man and he's okay. It was like, well, in real life, I, I think he probably was. I think John Dickinson was all right, but he said, hold well but like yeah man did i woo did i tighten up as i said that out loud um he was the only like member of congress during that period to uh free the people he had enslaved well there we go um so i don't know if that like that i honestly don't think he should get a cookie for that um but just there's this is i read this on wikipedia i don't just know john dickinson facts it's such Um, a terrible scale like we're (laughs) it's terrible and that's what i think is so interesting about this but i mean to what you were saying about like the applause at the end because like mm-hmm. oh they were screaming their heads off at each yeah. other and getting into a cane fight um to the point where caesar rodney just like collapses from right. the excitement of it all um so they're <laughs> not super civil to each other for most of the show mm-hmm. um but yeah that moment has always stuck out to me that like oh this we're gonna just like give this little little moment to mm-hmm. Dickinson here at the end because well he is he is going to fight for the colonies at the end of the day mm-hmm. um yeah and he has a great line about like oh because I hold you know America in, in the same high regard as you do and I know it's just it's a really interesting moment and um you could almost just write a whole musical about Dickinson because he is really interesting. Well, a lot of these guys you could. I mean, a lot of well, these yes. guys have, like, it, they were, it, it's an interesting configuration of human beings. But the, it, it, that moment, reading about that moment again, really struck me as, as that sort of, like, civility above all sort of thing, which just leads you to some terrible places. I think we've discovered in, because in, not in the sense that we shouldn't be civil to each other. I do believe we should be civil to each other and have, uh, because you do want to have real debate. You do want to have real discussion. You don't want to just have yelling at each other. That is actually, I think more a, a parliamentary thing where you have a party that has control. And so they can do whatever they want. So the debate is really pro forma more than it's not really going to be like, unless you get some people to break away, you're, you're, you're sunk. Um, but I think that the, the the civility can really cloud some terribly dark, awful things like slavery that that people are are doing, and it it comes into focus very very early on because one, if nothing else, Hamilton has really drawn into sharp focus for a lot of people, again including my mother, um, that Thomas Jefferson maybe wasn't a good guy, and maybe um, just, maybe he wasn't so great. Bitballing here, yeah. Um, Formerly my, my mom's favorite uh, founding father. And um, uh, I think that when this, th- there's that hilarious song where, by the way, don't, we're going to have some heavy talks here, but I really want to get around to how hilarious some of these songs are. Okay. Yeah. The, yes. the hilarious song in which John Adams is going around the room trying to find anyone to write the Declaration of Independence. It's and he'll, so great. <laughs> I say you should write it, Franklin. Yes, you. No. Yes, you, Dr. Franklin. You. Mr. Adams, but Mr. Adams, the things I write are only light extemporanea. I won't put politics on paper, it's a mania. So I refuse to use the pen in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. He lands on Jefferson, and he but he quotes Jefferson. 
to to kind of get them. And we solemnly declare that we will preserve our liberties being with one mind, resolved to die free men rather than to live slaves. Thomas Jefferson on the necessity of taking up arms, 1775. Magnificent. Yeah, it's a great sentence. But... But... But, bud. <laughs> like, yeah. it is the... The lack of acknowledgement in the hypocrisy, not only from Jefferson, which is fine, it's the lack of acknowledgement in the hypocrisy from Adams when <laughs> the whole central tension of the show is going to be about whether or not, well, it's not, I guess at that point, the tension is really just whether or not this thing's going to get written. Right. Is the, Are there legs to this but whole is, thing? Right. But is the slavery condemnation clause and getting down to the fact that again like really the songs are one thing but reading the summary on wikipedia is like that jefferson's the one who like crosses out the clause on the declaration to prevent adams from having to do it i mean this is very <laughs> like you know it's just there's it's so nuts that we would have been like oh yeah thomas jefferson hated slavery like, i don't think he did gang i really um, don't he think he did. definitely did not he probably he was an above like, average fan i would say uh, yeah i mean like <laughs> i uh so i mean in keeping with you know how i talked about this musical being a part in like american history like my parents we would visit like um presidential sure. uh, historical sites we've sure. been to monticello mm -hmm. um he definitely profited. He was uh he was a fan. Mm -hmm. Um there is just there's so yeah, the fact that Adams doesn't in that moment um acknowledge it, I think that is a really good observation on your part because otherwise Adams is just like he is just on it. He is like a bulldog mm -hmm. attacking and like finding the weak spots. But it comes down to Rutledge, who like Jefferson's getting on his high horse and saying like the um and people are deeply wounded by this infamous practice. And Rutledge is just like, well, consider your own wounds, for you are a practitioner, are you not? Right. And then Jefferson has no rebuttal. It's because just, there isn't one. Because there is not a rebuttal. And oh no, he just there's a pause and he's just like, I have uh, resolved to right. release my slaves. <laughs> and then like he doesn't, but he, he does just like too. after he dies, um, it's writes just, in his will that like oh these are the people right that sally I, hemings I, I am, yeah right exactly well and you know like sally hemings is martha jefferson's biological half-sister right. so there's you know that's all bad i mean it's, it's just yes yeah so i'm you know i yeah. that's why you know when we were talking about 1776 and i was like i know this is going to be a lot of conversation obviously around this the subject matter and so you know i i'm not here to just be like this is a great musical and all these people were amazing because they weren't and i think that for 1969 this musical yeah. starts to like put some cracks in the veneer of these these founders that we have put up onto pedestals i mean mm -hmm. I, I say we i should mean like the white people that wrote history books yes. were just like weren't these men so great mm -hmm. look at their achievements let's just not talk about some of this other stuff though like a lot of this other stuff yeah a lot of this other stuff um so i think for 1969 i think there's a start um in in like music and also just musical theater about this moment in american history is so unlikely but it won the tony and i don't i don't think i realized it beat out hair which in yeah. retrospect is like wow what but also i guess like i don't it's know a hair was maybe Tony's. just like too 
well, too it, like out there for the probably. Tonys. I mean, probably it was. I don't think Hair won any Tony Awards, which is just amazing. Oh, so- um, it was only not. I'm now looking at the Tony nominations. Well, see, now it, it is important to remember. In 1969, there was no right. Tony for best score or best book of a musical. So it, it those aspects were not, which is also weird, right? Um, yeah. Hair, unless I'm mistaken. Okay, it received two nominations for best musical and best director. It oh, won wow. neither. Okay. 1776 received six nominations, um, winning three best musical, best director, and best, best featured, featured actor, actor, right, for Ronald Holgate as Richard Henry Lee. And you better believe we're going to talk about his song. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> which, we, which only happened because um, uh, William Daniels refused his nomination. Because uh, his name wasn't above the title on yeah, the poster. Just, and I'm just like, that I, was the I, rule for a long time that you couldn't I, be nominated as lead actor unless your name was above the title. Yeah. I don't that, blame him for turning down that nomination because I would, I mean, part of me is just like he, for me, and I think that's why I will keep coming back to the show. I think his performance is just like, I don't know. Oh, There's yeah. something about it that I am just drawn to. I love his voice. I love that he's like not the best singer, but it doesn't matter um, at all. And I mean, I would be, I would be pretty insulted if it were like, oh, hey, you, um, you are John Adams in 1776, but you are just going to get the featured actor nomination, just because we didn't put a font above this other font. Well, you know, Ron Holgate got a Tony about out of it, so right. I'm sure he was Ron like, Holgate, Bill. oh man, I hope he sends him a like a Christmas wreath or something every year because, <laughs> I mean, he was fine, like I'm sure, but like, it, I, yeah, let's talk about. <laughs> The he drops of out of the show. Like he has song. his song, he crushes song. it, and then he's just like, "Nope, can't be on the committee. I have to go back to Virginia because I might be governor." He actually was never governor, no. um, but it's yeah. And then he's just gone. They say that God in heaven is everybody's God. I'll admit that God in heaven is everybody's God. But I tell you, John, with pride, God leads a little on the side of the leaves, the leaves of old Virginia. The sea is here and there and everywhere only a leaf. Here there and everywhere a little out. There's Arthur Lee, Bobby Lee, and General Lighthorse Harry Lee, Willie Lee, Jesse Lee, and Richard A. That's me and me, my blood stop running. If I can't deliver up to you a resolution on any fantasy, yes, oh my God, it's here and there and Come on, boys, join in with me. Here and there and Immediately, here and there and Shortly, here and there and And I'll come back triumphantly. Here and there and What I find to be hilarious about the first like four show- songs, maybe five, is how so many of the rhymes are state names, <laughs> yeah, city names. Like they really Sherman tries so hard to rhyme Philadelphia. I mean, he just tries so he hard rhymes it with Philadelphia. Yeah, and, um, yeah. He got some. What slant, else you gonna do? Slant, I know. What are you gonna do? But they, they don't. They say it a lot. And then Virginia gets rhymed. If you say it like Virginia, you can try to rhyme it with some other stuff. But I mean, the first several songs in the show, Piddle Twiddle and Resolve, like just 
we have to establish They're what so, the colonies are so wacky that yeah it, it's it's super but i kind of i don't mind it because most of the time he just gives up and he's just like <laughs> i'm you know what i'm not going to try it we're just going to like leave the city or state name like out there and we'll just say it a few times like oh in God. but mr adams where it's like connecticut over and over and it's like I, I don't know how many other songs were Connecticut in it, especially in musical theater. Um, and he's oh, just like, I'm, I'm going for it. This, this is going to be the refrain. Um, but doesn't it give it kind of like a like, I don't want to say Disney historical, like Liberty Square kind of vibe, a little bit like that, but like an educational film kind of vibe where they're hitting you with very specific facts. Yes. Like it's going to be on a test. <laughs> like, where's this guy from? Where's Richard Lee from? He's from Virginia, right? We know it because he said it 47 times in the song. In a very, like, I 5, mean. 5,000 times. In a, a song that, like, I imagine he walked off stage and passed out. Because it is in the top of his range. It that is so is high. Out of breath. That man and is I out am of breath. Sure, okay, yes, I'm so glad you said that. Because <laughs> it had been a while since I had listened to the cast album. Uh-huh. And so anytime now I'm listening to the Leaves of Old Virginia, I'm like, yeah, okay, like this is, like you're bopping along. And then by the end, I, I am out of breath. And I'm like, why didn't they do another take? Because his last note is so ragged. And it kind of works like in in the world of the show for that scene i don't mind it but i'm also like for the cast album would you not want to give your tony award winning feature well he hadn't won a tony at that point probably but yeah well that's probably true but like i really like this era of um of cast album i have to say i really love the the how ragged it is how these guys do not have to have the best voices. They don't even have to have good voices, really. Yeah. Like, they they just have to be able to carry a tune in a bucket. Like, it's really, really, it's not that big a deal. They do not care. I'm trying to figure out if this was this album was produced by Thomas Z. Shepard or Goddard Lieberson because it was on Columbia, and I cannot find that information oh, for I some reason. Know. But either they- way... It's on Columbia Records, so it's it's. This is a well-produced album. Like this is who, you know, that's that's the the prestige cast album label of the time. Um, so it, it's going to be as good as you're going to get, basically. And yeah. like the the, I think one of the reasons they didn't do another take was because that was probably like take nine or take right. ten and that was it like he did not like we'll live with that note because he got all the words right before it like it's really you know if you he watch sure the, did if you he watch got the, all those words out he did he got them all he spit them all out and if you watch the company documentary mm-hmm. um the the famous company documentary about the making of that cast album you you get the sense of like how these things go and this is recorded in one day there's not that many songs. It's also a very short album. It's like it's 46 minutes long. Very, very short. short album. Yeah. But a so, very long musical overall. Right. I mean, the book is, yeah, we can talk about that. But just but really does, quick. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say about the album. I'm so glad you said that because that is something too that I love about this this time. And I feel like I hear it a lot in, in the 70s and we're still getting like, they just, they're all in like that big open room. And that's what I love at the end of some of the yours, yours, yours Mm-hmm. songs between john and abigail you can kind of hear their voices like mm-hmm. cross crossing at least like in my earbuds you know it's like oh they're moving and it's just a really nice sense of 
movement. And I, I don't know if they were actually, they're probably not actually moving among mics, but that's what I'd like right. to picture. You know, mm-hmm. they're sort of like, I'm getting a little taste of maybe what the blocking might have looked like. If you if you just listen to this cast album, um, you're missing a lot. You're missing a lot of content because um, this is a hefty, hefty book. Yeah, because the songs are largely character songs. Mm-hmm. I think But Mr. Adams is one of the few songs that actually advances the story in any way. The rest of the songs, as I'm looking through the list, it is really just park and bark, what am I feeling right now kind of mm-hmm. songs. Like, you know, or or here I am, as in the lease of old Virginia. Um <laughs> But like, but my well, another song that I really really like in the show, "Cool, Cool, Considerate Men," which is a really like that song you could do today, and it would actually be more effective, I think, than it was in nineteen sixty nine. Mister Hancock, you're a man of property, one of us. Why don't you join us in our minuet? Why do you persist on dancing with Mister Adams? Good Lord, sir, you don't even like him. That is true. He annoys me quite a lot. But still, I'd rather trot to Mr. Adams' new gavotte. But why, sir? For personal glory, for a place in history? Be careful, sir. History will brand Mr. Adams and his followers as traitors. Traitors, Mr. Dickinson? To what? The British crown or the British (laughs) half-crown? Fortunately, there are not enough men of property in America to dictate policy. Uh, Perhaps not. But don't forget that most men with nothing would rather protect the possibility of becoming rich than face the reality of being poor. And that is why they will follow us. To the right, ever to the right, never to the left, forever to the right. Where there's gold, a market that will hold, tradition that is old, reluctance to be He plays the violin, I feel, is like the last song where you're like, oh, that was fun, you know? Like, we're just talking about America and then you're like oh oh things are going downhill and the egg is like oh just a little spike of like oh this is kind of like we needed a song here and oh "Oh," but it's like super nationalistic and then it's just it's the worst let's just let's just pause for a second and talk about how the egg is the worst we're waiting for the scratch 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 of that tiny little fellow waiting for the egg to hatch on this humid Monday morning in this congressional incubator. God knows the temperature's hot enough to hatch a stone, but will it hatch an egg? I don't think I've like thought about some of these songs in this way because like I said, I have just, this show has just been a pressure. Sure. And like over the years, I have definitely sat down and been like, so is this good? Like, is it good or do I just know it well? Because there's a big difference. One of the problems is the word. Egg is not a good word. It just isn't. It's not a good word to say. It's not a good word to hear. And 
everybody pronounces this is so in the weeds everybody pronounces the word egg slightly different just a little egg. just a ton of some people say egg. egg some people say egg some people you know everyone has a little different timber on it and when you have these people saying the word over and over and over and over again you kind of just go i don't want to hear this song anymore like i really got to you know how long is this song the song is only two two minutes and 46 seconds and like 46 seconds into this i'm like can we please stop can we please stop talking about this egg and like because i don't care about the egg anymore. it's also it is also a dumb metaphor and i get that it's like it's honest of the period it also is the poster song which is so so funny that it's the poster i don't know if you how much like you've looked up about like about the egg of the song um, no but i i remember at some point when i was reading about this musical as i want to do mm-hmm. um and I, I wish i could remember where i had read this that the egg was like the last song written for the show i think it was like while oh, they really? were try like out of town tryouts sure. and I can't remember if like there had been another song in that spot or if they were just like, ah, oh, like we just, we just need something here. Mm-hmm. And so the logo, they had already had the poster with the Eagle coming out of the British egg. Are you and serious? so Sherman Edwards was like, Oh, okay. Like I will write the song about the poster, you know? And I don't know. Like when I learned that, I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. So that's how some songs get written. Um, uh-huh. um, so I don't know. Maybe that explains some it of does, your, and I, your I hate reaction. it more. I hate it more now because <laughs> Before the like two minutes ago, I was like, but like it's the poster. Clearly, somebody liked this song, and I'm like, oh, never mind. Yep, it was the other it way was around. The other way around. No, the egg, yeah, no, the we, we've already dedicated well way more time to the egg than than ever needs to be dedicated in my opinion. <laughs> because it also doesn't do anything. I mean, it's this. It it is a. I, I'm not saying every single song in a musical needs to advance the plot. Um, you know, the Lees of Old Virginia is objectively a well-written musical theater character introduction. Um, and Molasses to Rum, as we've talked about, is an mm-hmm. objectively, like, interesting character moment. And it does sort of advance the argument, anyway, because at that point, yeah. the plot is basically an argument. Um, but when you have so many songs that just stop the show so we can sing a song and then stop the show so we can sing a song, that's why I said it feels more like an Eisenhower musical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very 50s in that way. And there's only so many times you can do that before I kind of go, I really, I would really wish you'd sing about some, because it also does that thing that like a lot of musicals did still do, which drives me crazy that the songs stop halfway through act two. And then Mm -hmm. we have 30 minutes of dialogue, which is what is so funny about my vivid memory of this show is the first time I saw the movie, I saw the last 30 minutes on TV. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, it's 1776. And I knew it was a musical. And I, they did the whole last 30 minutes and there's not a song to be found. And I was really just like, maybe this is a different, maybe, like maybe they a made this. Well, maybe they, I kept thinking, maybe they made this movie into a musical. Like maybe that's what I'm watching is I'm watching the movie and then they made it into a musical. But then no, they play the, you know, over the credits and stuff. And I went, oh, this is a musical. That's weird, huh. you know, because yeah. it's like that thing. I mean, even some of my favorite musicals from this period do that. They do not musicalize their finales. And I think that's always kind of a cheat. And it shows that you are not writing songs deeply integrated into the script. You are sort of writing songs where they feel neat or fun or interesting. And then like, but when the storytelling is is here, we're going to throw the music out because the music's getting in the way. And we're just going to tell the story all the way to the end. Now, 
that having been said, I think it's a pretty good book. Like I think that, yeah. that Peter Stone wrote a good book for this show and he's a very good writer. So that's, you know. And I, yeah, and I do think that balances out. And I will say, I mean, Sherman Edwards was like a popular songwriter. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I'm not saying that excuses him because I agree, like most of the songs are just like, hey, let's just have Martha Jefferson sing about uh, Thomas Jefferson's violin. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, we're going to do this right now. This doesn't need to be here. Um, and I think Peter Stone said that people came up to him and said like, you, you don't need the music mm-hmm. in this show. And part of me is like, that's fair. But part of me is like, I think there's something about making this subject a musical. Mm-hmm. And you have this really like, this really strong book. I think as like in my musical theater experience, I feel like this is one of the stronger books. And maybe this is just like, I like words. I like I like stories where people are just talking to each other um, at length and discussing things. And so I think on those merits, this is a really strong book. And because it's a musical, having these, as you call them, park and bark songs, right. kind of balances it out and adds the levity that I think but I think when people encounter this musical for the first time, it's totally unexpected. Like it's a very horny show. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you want to see what I wrote here on my notes? I wrote yes, horny I founding fathers. I yeah, want to make sure we got to that. That should like, that was probably because the working title. I was shocked. <laughs> like, and not from a like, like clutching your pearls standpoint, but like this show gets horny early and yes. stays that way for a while. Like yes. it just all of a sudden we're talking about, like, yeah, I mean, it just, and it comes out of nowhere. The show is suddenly like, <laughs> you know, it's great chicks. You know what I yeah. mean? It's just like, well, I guess they're like, I guess they're married, but it's still like. God. And it's still really gross. It um, is so gross. And it's weird too thinking that like, oh, um, my parents like parked me in front of the TV to watch this from a very early age. And I think they were just like, oh, she's not going to get it for a long time. Um, well, but I remember... I was going to say, I had um, in eighth grade history class, it was American history, and our teacher loved movies. So he was mostly just like showing us movies and like Mm -hmm. lecturing. And so we got to like, he's like, oh, I'm going to show you all starting tomorrow, this movie, 1776. And I'm just like, are you? I'm not going to say anything. And everyone else, of course, the moment that William Daniels appears on screen, is like, oh my God, Mr. Feeney. And I'm like, no, he's John Adams. And, but the other thing that, of course, can you imagine a classroom filled with eighth graders listening to all like horny Benjamin Franklin? It's, I think, I think on that level, that has to be a like, what? Like kind of, I don't want to say mind blowing, but just very unexpected. It's very unexpected. unexpected. It comes, it comes wildly out of nowhere. And like, it, it starts, I guess it starts in But Mr. Adams, right? With Jefferson. Saying, that's definitely there i think there might be i mean it's also just like throughout the whole book like right. it is everywhere um but it gets it, i mean it gets so like because they have like what's so funny about it to me is that the first interaction you see between john adams and abigail is very what we would consider to be 18th century where they're referring to each other as sir and madam my dearest friend right and it's fun and kind of chaste and and uh it feels largely platonic and she's hilarious yes. and it's great and then we get into but mr adams where jefferson's like i'm going home because i haven't seen my wife in six months now then sir will you be a patriot or a lover? Lover. 
No. But I burn, Mr. A. So do I, Mr. J. You. You do. John. Who'd have thought it? Mr. Jefferson. Dear Mr. Jefferson. I'm only 41. I still have my virility. And I can romp through Cupid's Grove with great agility. But life is more than sexual combustibility. Wow, this is just... It's its so horny. And the fact that Adams is like, look, Jefferson's not going to write the Declaration of Independence unless he gets <laughs> laid. So... I'm just going to Just lie back and think of America. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just lie there comfortably my and God. I'll just facilitate this for my own ends. Like it really is. Um, it's so gross. It's, it's re- and then, so like, gross. Adams and Franklin meeting Martha Jefferson. And they're just like, oh, like, how does he hold on to a bounty such as you? It's like, she is a human being. It's, oh my God. She's not a bounty. Um, so, yeah, it's. It's but Betty Buckley, though. Her I, well, voice. no, sure, no, absolutely, <laughs> no complaints, no, oh. yeah, no, absolutely, just fine. I want to talk for a second, actually, about another moment that is, from a dramatic standpoint, super weird, but beautiful, poignant, <laughs> gorgeous, and yet also probably shouldn't be in the show, which is "Mama Look Sharp." I knew that's what you were going to say. Yeah. It is a song that every time I'm listening to this show, I forget it's coming mm-hmm. because it comes after Cool, Cool, Considerate Men and Before the Egg, like two very stock 1776 songs. And it is just like the Fear No More or the, what's the name of that song that's in Roar of the Grease Paint? Feeling Good, which was made famous later by Nina Simone. Um, oh. But uh, it is... It's like a song that, and this happens in musicals with some some frequency, though it usually doesn't happen at the end of Act One. Usually, like because you've got to give the actors time to stop singing, you've got to give the mm-hmm. actors time to sit down, rest their voice, like in a live show, and that's why a lot of songs, especially short songs sung by characters you've never seen before, like mm-hmm. exist. It, like for example, a great example is uh, "Turning" in Les Mis. Turning <laughs> exists so that all the other actors can go change costumes. They can clean up the blood and they right. can get on catch and they their breath. catch their breath and get ready for the rest of act two. That's why turning exists. And that's also why turning gets cut when you make a movie because plot wise, it doesn't it. really need it. And, and as much as I love that song and I think it's actually silly to cut it like that's the function of it. it it's a practical piece of music in that moment. So, Mama looks sharp, which is when somebody turns to the basically the janitor at the Independence Hall, and it's like, "What's your whole deal?" And he tells the story of was is it somebody he knew who died in who got so killed? It's What's, it's um, Andrew McNair, the custodian, asking custodian. the courier. Oh, that's um, the courier. That's yeah, as okay. the courier who's been you know periodically just like quickly and just like disheveledly coming into Congress with dispatches from Washington that are just super depressing as you can right. imagine. And um, so, you know, they just invite him to sit down and have a drink because um, he's usually just in and out mm-hmm. and they're just kind of like, yeah, like what's, what's your deal. And he's telling them about like seeing his two best friends get killed on the same day. Um, mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. Like the way it's written in the script is that like at first he's sort of like sharing this story with a lot of bravado but then, like, 
oh, the reality of what he's saying sets in. And mm-hmm. then, and then Mama Look Sharp comes in. I, I honestly, I know you usually ask this question at the Ooh. end of the show. No, that's but fine. This, this might, it might be, I have, mm, it's hard to choose, but this might be my favorite song, partly just because it is kind of so unlike the rest of the score. Oh um, yeah. I love that sort of like folk music sound. Um, it's so obviously like commentary on the Vietnam war as yes. well. Oh yeah. Like that's so much a part two of this. Like there are several other moments throughout, throughout the musical that, that kind of nod toward that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think like this song just, I, I, I just find that it has a lot of power. It does feel like, what is this doing here sometimes? And it is often, you know, cut. You brought up Vietnam, mm-hmm. which I think is important to how Mama Look Sharp feels if isn't, because it feels kind of, it feels kind of half-hearted. Yes. Because in the context of the show, Mama Look Sharp sort of gives gravitas to what they're doing. Like there are actual people dying for what you're bickering about. It gives, now the the sad part being nobody else is there (laughs) really like to hear it but that's fine um it gives the audience a sense of stakes yeah. it gives the audience a sense of like outside be- of the congressional chamber people are dying. right and also it's important for that reason to me because one thing that our sort of linear grade school uh, education history education uh can get us to think is like we declared independence then was the shot heard around the world. Then it was Yorktown. Like, or not Yorktown. That was the end of the war. Um, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Uh, Conqu- Concord. Um, Concord and what? No, Lexington no, and Lexington. Concord. Lexington, dang it. Um, <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Uh, the, but so, like, we, had, we tend to have that, that point of view. That it goes one to two to three. And it wasn't. The war was going on and we Mm -hmm. still hadn't declared independence. Like we were sort of, we were just sort of fighting the British in, in, in the New York area and like in in New England and the rest of the country, which didn't exist yet was sort of just like, I mean, maybe like, I don't know if I want to do this or not. Like, I don't, don't, I'm not feeling it, you know, that kind of thing. But the, the allegory to Vietnam, which is certainly (laughs) extant, isn't fully executed because of the surrounding circumstances. Like the horrors of war aspect works, but in the show it serves to, like I say, give stakes to what the men are arguing about and to sort of amplify that these deaths not be in vain. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the Vietnam context, it's the other way around. It's not, it's not a great one-to-one. It's just more like, war is bad, right? right? Okay, moving on. And so I think isolated, and when you say like, oh, wow, like, so they're not really like taking shots at it, but it does, I think for like Broadway, 1969 oh, theater, like mm-hmm. I think they were wanted to be, but like oh, thinking yeah. about it too and knowing that like hair is on stage at the same right. time, like doing radically like more out there, like audacious yeah. things. Um, yeah, this does just sort of feel, and you know, they have some lines later in the, in the play, in the book, um, kind of referencing that. And especially with Washington's dispatches, you do get a picture of what's going on, you know, out there. And it should, to me, the the missed opportunity there is for John Adams not to be hearing that song. Like, I think that's a kick in the pants for somebody like that. 
and also then would interestingly parallel, he sits here and rewrites this song, um, rewrites this show. Uh, welcome to another feature. Patrick, welcome to another Patrick. Patrick fixes the show 50 years later. Um, but it then gives an interesting turn to is anybody there? Yeah. When if, if like he's in the room and he overhears this this courier singing Mama Looks Sharp and nobody knows he's there. And then later he sings Is Anybody There to an empty room and then somebody does overhear him, as we know, mm-hmm. and the, and it moves things for you know what it motivates and moves mm, things forward. Yeah. You see what I mean? There's an interesting parallelism yeah. there. Um it, the show doesn't need it, but it's it does give it all kind of a more sense of of cohesion. Yeah, that nice dramatic cohesion, right. which it is kind of surprising that they didn't kind of which is just I lacking. Hadn't thought about them as being in parallel but but they but they kind of are because mm-hmm. I know that the courier is there just to you know he's like literally um like this person that uses this phrase exposition owl because I think there was some video game mm-hmm. where like an owl would literally show up and like I have exposition for you right um so like he is there to deliver like exposition yeah. um through Washington missives um which is what inspires Adams to then sing "Is anybody there?" So right. yeah, that, that would have been it, it would have been nice for any member of Congress to like, oh, let's just sit down. This this young man has been coming in to like, what's what's his deal? Instead of like the custodian in the leather apron who are just like, let's have a drink. Tell us about your trauma. Right, which is nice in its own way to sort of give these ancillary characters a moment. Yes. Uh, I just would have like it, it shows what it's what happens when you have a musical written by people who don't write musicals, mm-hmm. and it, it is this thing of just like there's a there's a missed opportunity there for some dramatic connection, a little dramatic tension, a little parallelism, little things that can really make a show go from really good to really great. That having been said, it ran for three years, so what the hell do I? Know? But I mean, you think about the subject matter for this, and it's something I have been thinking about a lot mm-hmm. um, because, and we we can't not talk about Hamilton. Right. Um, because this is, um, you know, it is a story that foregrounds uh, white dudes, mm-hmm. um, re- usually wealthy white dudes um, right. out of this Congress. And that is typically how it has been cast. That is how the revival was cast. I'm pretty sure the Encores version um, it got had a, a little, more diverse. A little yeah. colorful, but not... I mean, still okay. I mean, Andrew DeShields was there, so, you know. Yeah, and Jubilant Sykes, and... But so the the revival that was slated for to come out this year is supposed to be all female. Right, and it's very diverse, and I've been thinking about that a lot, and I'm curious to know your thoughts, too, because part of me is like, oh, this is interesting, but it also feels like, okay, are you you bringing this show back? Like, I'm just really curious to see what Diane Paulus and the company do with this because part of me also feels like maybe maybe we need new stories to feature these performers like i I, and not maybe we do we do um and i I, because at the end of the day it still has the hamilton problem which is yes it is a diverse cast but it is portraying and glorifying white dudes right like that's their stories and their story and i like the reclaiming Mm-hmm. of it um i like the employment numbers don't right don't get me wrong but i am always m- on balance anti-revival and so i would say 
if you're going to do this, let's at least please write a new show about, you know what I mean? But we already did that. We wrote Hamilton. So, but we can keep writing new shows. Like you can keep giving like new creators money to write new. Well, and I think that that six has kind of like, and and, and it's a show that I I have a lot of mixed feelings about, but I haven't seen it. Um, it, it is lighting the way in how this can be like there there's there's a way to do it and then and and really do it not not by half measures not glorify the white guy not right. tell the same story just use different actors but really do something interesting new mm-hmm. different that it is all female and minority and like let's do it you know let's yeah. do it for real so there's a way to do there it. are a lot of musicals that you know they're written and they're performed and i think people they win Tonys. And I think there is a place for it in, you know, history of Broadway Mm -hmm. and a history even of how, how we tell stories about America and who tells those stories, who gets to tell those stories um, and participate in the creation of those. So for me, like that, that's one of the things that I find really interesting is like, Oh, what are we, what are we saying back to ourselves with Mm -hmm. this show? what what are we trying to accomplish um because on the one hand i do think for 1969 this problematizes the founders but in 2020 it still just feels like oh okay yeah they they were humans but like look what they did oh my god isn't this so great um which i feel the finale when they're calling out the names and you have the bell tolling at first it sounds really just like oh, are we, are we sure about this? There is something in, and I, I am like, know nothing about music, but there's something about like the collection of chords and notes that's happening that feels really uncertain, mm. but it ultimately kind of coalesces into this very brassy, loud, like celebratory, but still a little like, well, I'm not sure. Um, feeling for me, at least that's what mm-hmm. I hear when I listen to it. Um, it has so a dirge kind of quality to it. It's really an odd way to end a show. Like it's it really... very weird, and it makes it it makes a very horny show very solemn. Um, you it know, is a it's a very horny show. I don't. I feel like we may like you may be listening to this thinking, man, they're talking about how horny it is a lot. But like, it's weird. It's, like it's weird. It's very horny. weird. It's notable. Thank you so much, Teresa. This was such Thank a great you. conversation. Thank um, you. This where is can like people f- a dream. Where can people find your your writings and your things? Um, I have a, a website with a very long name. It is Teresa J. com because I am too cheap to just pay for Rock and the roll. URL. Um, and I am, full disclosure, not doing much freelance writing right now um, because I love it, but it also stresses me out because I also have a full-time job. Ah, um, well then, yes. Yes, yes. But that is where you can find, I have editorial stuff on there about theater and food and some fiction. Um, so that's my website. I'm on Twitter at T Beckhusen, B-E-C-K-H-U-S-E-N. Thank you so much for doing the show. It was so great to Thank talk you. to you. It was so wonderful to chat with you. I love, I love this podcast so much. Mama, hey mama, come looking for me. I'm here in the
The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at UnknownPenguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Teresa J. Beckhusen for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. I'll close your eyes, my Billy. Them eyes that cannot see And I'll bury ya, my Billy Beneath the maple tree